Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Can a fully electric vehicle serve an on-the-go family's routine of work shuttling kids and road trips? That was the question that uh, USU marketing professor posed and his family, involved your family, um, uh, a while back uh, by purchasing a Tesla. So that's an ambitious project and uh, the result is a, an article It's coming out in the June issue of the magazine uh, Sustainability, the Journal of Record. And uh, the title is Bridging the Chasm, an Early Adopter's Perspectives on How Electric Vehicles Can Go Mainstream. Professor Stafford's answer, yes, with some grit and optimism. We're going to talk about this. We're also going to talk about car sharing. We'll talk about uh, full range of uh, what might be in our future. Um, and the acronym ACES, Automated, Connected, Electric, and Shared. We're talking about cars and perhaps our car future and fit this all into a discussion of sustainability. Uh, so we welcome in, uh, back to the program, Edwin Stafford, Professor of Marketing and Associate Department Head in the Management Department at uh, John M. Huntsman School of Business at Utah State University. You'll recall we have talked to him about uh, his documentaries, Wind Uprising and Scaling Wind. His current work focuses on how electric vehicles can become mainstream. Um, he also, interestingly, runs Utah High School Clean Air Poster Contest. Ed Stafford, welcome back. Hey, thank you very much, Tom. Uh, we also welcome in uh, Anche Growl, who is doctoral researcher at Leeds University Business School in England, currently visiting scholar in the management department at the Huntsman School of Business at USU. Her research interests lie at the area of uh, consumer motivations for anti-consumption and consumer sharing, and uh, she spent uh, two years in industry with a leading automobile manufacturer in Germany, which fueled her interest in diffusion of innovation and car sharing as a fascinating service of sustainable transportation. So, Anche Growl, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tom. Good morning. Um, so how, how do you find Utah? You've, you've lived in several places. Yeah, I, I do love Utah a lot. Um, I love waking up to the mountains every morning, and I'm so glad that now we got a bit of spring and summer weather as well. I'm really outdoorsy, so I'm into hiking and biking, and I'm just loving my weekends here. Excellent. Um, you hope you enjoy your time here. Thank you. Let me start with uh, Ed Stafford. This is a pretty big decision to buy a Tesla as the family vehicle. Um, let's put this in context. You've been an early adopter of uh, in the area of sustainability, right? You, solar panels, etc. Absolutely. Abs- uh, you know, I uh, was one of the first to own a Prius here in Cache Valley. Uh, but prior to uh, that, I've been experimenting with compact fluorescent bulbs, LED bulbs. I even had solar-powered Christmas lights uh, attempted to uh, uh, integrate that. But I built a green home. I have solar. I have ground source heating. Uh, and the reason I've uh, done this, I've built my career about kind of uh, looking at uh, clean technology and incorporating that into my family's life. Uh, and so that way I can write and, um, and talk about them. So I can talk as uh, someone who experiences these technologies, and I can look at it from a marketing perspective and from a consumer adoption perspective. And that's, that's part of uh, why I, I, I do these things. Let me just parenthetically ask you about those solar-powered Christmas lights. Uh, yeah, they did, did, did not that work. work. No, did they not did work. not work okay. at all. And actually, I returned them, and I uh, it's kind of an ongoing joke. I talk to my students about it. On one hand, it sounds like a great innovation. I mean, think about the 
uh, convenience of being able to just put Christmas lights in your yard without cords, without, uh, you know, all sorts of the infrastructure that you need. Uh, we just found that the little panels that were uh, associated with the lights didn't work very well, particularly here in, in Utah. And um, so uh, I think it's an innovation that may work in some places, but not necessarily here in Cache Valley. Mm. Perils of being an early adopter, I guess. <laughs> yes, yes. So understandable that you do this. You do it for your work, and I, I assume also, you know, as, as a believer, wanting to save the environment. But you go home and you say, honey, we're going to put on solar panels. Honey, we're going to do ground-based <laughs> heating. What, what are the... What does the family say? Uh, you know, it, it, uh, it's definitely a risk. I'll tell you, uh, the ground source heating, uh, also known as geothermal heat pump system, has been fantastic. I mean, it is a major savings in electricity for our house. Uh, the house does not have much natural gas. We only use it for cooking and for uh, kind of a backup heater, which we rarely use. Um, but two winters ago, the geothermal system did go down, and there was nobody in Cache Valley to fix it. So I had to go out to somebody clear out near Ogden to come in and fix the system. And so that is one of the challenges. If you've got an alternative heating system in your home, uh, you have the risk of not having infrastructure to have it uh, serviced. And so um, I fully acknowledge that when I talk about these clean technologies. Um, but for me, it's been uh, part of an adventure that I love sharing those stories about. <laughs> so. So adventure be that would be the word if you're an early adapter. <laughs> oh, I think my wife. Right? I think my wife wanted to divorce me because it yeah. took about four days to get the heating up and running again in the house. We we had the backup system, so that worked. But uh, you know that is a, a challenge. Uh, that is a risk. If you do something that's different from what other people have and what uh, local services are willing to support, um, it is a risk. And so that is the. Uh, characteristic of an innovator or early adopter of mm. new technologies. Right. The upside, uh, maybe we talk about that transition to buying a Tesla. So you, you were an early adopter, your family was, of the Prius. Um, yes. And that worked well for you for a long time? If, if you think about it, the Prius really did not involve any major changes in our behavior. It still consumed gasoline. I mean, it was very efficient. And so, uh, if anything, the only real major change was that I had fewer trips to the gas pump. Uh, but otherwise, it uh, fit fairly easily into our lifestyle. The, the Tesla, however, has required more effort. And I would say that of all the green technologies that my family has adopted uh, over the years, um, that has been has required the most thinking ahead and effort purely because of needing to charge and knowing that it's going to take time to charge. So you, you've, got, uh, you've got two kind of big decisions when you go on a trip. One is where are you going to recharge your, your car when you need to, and what are you going to do for the hour or so that it may take to recharge? Uh, and so that has been um, this notion of multitasking has been something that we think about as we travel with mm. the car. Let me back up. I don't want to go to car sharing, but I want to back up on how you make that decision as a family and then, then, then the process. So I can imagine, I don't know if the kids knew what a Tesla oh, is. Oh, no, they did. They, you know, That's a pretty easy <laughs> sell, I guess. <laughs> the, oh, right? the, 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 they were all for it ahead of time. For me, I was kind of thinking, do we get another Prius? And here, here was the, the issue. The Prius has been an excellent car. There's no question about it. The, uh, the issue that I had with the Prius was that the fuel uh, efficiency of it had not changed that much over the past 10 years. And so, uh, you know, we tend to buy a car and we use it until it dies. So we had the Prius for uh, about 10 years, over 10 years. And so uh, I thought if I had purchased another Prius, would I 
you know, potentially lose that opportunity to get an electric vehicle. That is something that we had talked about. The kids were all wanting it. So um, we bit the bullet and said, okay, we're going to do it. And so that was uh, part of the process of, I think, being an early adopter. You kind of look at, um, it may not necessarily pay for itself in terms of gas savings, but there's kind of an element of, hey, this is an adventure. We can, you know, experiment with this technology and, and it's been very entertaining and that's something that I enjoy, you know. And you, you, do you go to Tesla showroom? Do you kick the tires? Yes. What do you... uh, well, it's, it's interesting. The Tesla showroom is very different from uh, a traditional uh, auto dealer. Um, basically, they show you uh, the, the various uh, models. They've got a Tesla that's all kind of stripped uh, apart so you can actually see the electric motors and the chassis underneath it. And so you get to test drive it. Uh, when we did test drive it, they actually put it in automated mode, which was pretty scary. My entire family's in this car, and the, uh, the car is driving itself on the freeway at 280 in California. It was a very uh, interesting experience. The car is driving itself. So yes. This is the automated version. Yes. We, yeah. we had an automated version that we got to test drive. We decided not to opt for that for our car. Um, but uh, it, it was uh, a very different kind of, uh, you know, uh, test drive experience, I would say. That's, it sounds terrifying to me. <laughs> it was. I, I, I shouldn't say terrifying, but it was different. At a high rate of speed. <laughs> the, but it, and it was weaving through traffic. Okay. I mean, it, it is, uh, it's, a, it's amazing what the technology can do. I personally uh, was not going to be an early adopter of that particular feature, but I was more than happy to be an early adopter of the electric features and to see what that would take. So. It's, it's you, the wife, and kids? Yes, I have two daughters, two <laughs> teenage daughters, yes. That's, the car's driving itself. <laughs> what did the kids think? Oh, they loved it. Okay. Oh, they loved it, yes. Yeah. Let me, uh, I just learned this morning an acronym from, from the two of you. So let me turn to Auntie Growl. Uh, ACES. Mm-hmm. Tell me what ACES is, and then I want to talk a little bit about uh, car sharing. And, yeah. and how you got into this. Perfect, thank you. Um, yeah, so as we have already um, introduced before, um, ACES is basically summarizing as an acronym the future of mobility and the future of transportation. And um, what I'm particularly looking at um, is the future of transportation when it comes to sharing cars um, instead of buying them and maybe adapting them and driving an electric car. Um, so maybe let me just give a bit of background about what car sharing is. Um, so basically car sharing is um, like a fascinating service of um, sustainable transportation um, where actually consumers gain access to a car for a short period of time um, and they only pay for the time they actually use the car and usually this is by the minute or by the hour and this guarantees users um, the flexible and spontaneous access to cars um, whenever they need one but actually without buying and possessing it and um, I spent some time um, in Berlin and also in Munich in Germany where I could have this real life um, experience with car sharing and me and my friends we loved it um, it was a fascinating way to get around the city center, um, especially for one-way drives, and that was perfect. Um, and so nowadays, a huge part of car sharing um, transactions are actually enabled via um, a market-mediated online platform. Um, so technology really plays a huge role here. We have apps, we have websites, and um, they list the cars that are available. They even show um, the locations, um, which reminds a bit of Google Maps. So we can actually see where the cars are parked, and um, we can offer a payment system, a booking 
booking system and insurance coverage. So really people only need to pay for what they're driving and not worry about anything else. So as a result, car sharing can actually satisfy all these needs of mobility and freedom that we have, um, but excludes the burdens that are traditionally associated with car ownership, um, such as maintenance or repairs or even investments for younger people. And so therefore it becomes increasingly popular, um, especially in Europe and North America. Mm. Uh, so ACEs, uh, automated, connected, electric, and shared. So we just uh, talk, we'll get back to talk about shared. So Ed uh, Stafford, um, and, and you're talking about electric. You also experienced automated. Uh, yes, yes, no. And you know, let me just follow up on what um, Antia had said, you know, this notion of freedom associated with cars. You know, in my generation as an aging baby boomer, uh, having a car was a symbol of freedom. What we're finding today is with younger people, millennials and kind of Generation Z, uh, younger people see automobiles as a potential burden. You know, I mean, the cost of insurance, the cost of parking, particularly in congested places like Munich, Berlin, New York, San Francisco. And so uh, what happens is, is that this car sharing becomes um, a way to kind of bring freedom back to transportation that you know you can have access to it. Uh, but you don't necessarily have to have the burdens of insurance and 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 finding a place to park and those types of issues with a car. Yeah. So, Grau, this seems counterintuitive to me, and I guess it's because of my age. I'm I'm in the age that Ed was talking about. The, <laughs> of, of I see a, a car equaling freedom, right, and not a burden. Mm-hmm. But it, I, guess, I guess there maybe is a generational. Yeah, um, uh, shift in how people view cars. Yes, and actually our research has shown that people are mainly attracted to car sharing because of their practical benefits that car sharing offers. So of course flexible car sharing services are most popular in urban areas and mega cities where people are exposed to restricted parking space, um, at, as Ed was saying, traffic jams, and in many cases they do not want to or they cannot afford a car. And it is restricting their mobility, it is restricting their global lifestyle style. Um, So however they have this need of mobility, um, this need always exists. And so it is a question of providing new and innovative mobility solutions in addition to public transport or walking or biking, which people love to do in big cities. Um, And so actually our research has shown that it saves people time and money and that it is actually an inexpensive alternative to car ownership um, that does not require any investment or commitment. Um, And users also like the fact that they can drive um, high-end luxury car brands such as BMW or Mercedes, um, especially in free-floating systems when it comes to mega cities. Um, and that is another advantage. And it is convenient to drive and drop the car um, within the city center. And this is what we love. Hmm. Mm-hmm. This would be connected to, as you said, other forms of, you know, you, you take public transportation, mm-hmm. I guess, one day and maybe the next day you do a car share. Yes. Um, so these, um, so the current free-floating systems, they actually allow you um, to go and find the car um, with the help of your app. So you can see where the cars are parked. You can go there and you can open and unlock the car um, either with an app or with a card, depending on the system that you're using. And then you can just go and drive the car and you can drop it wherever you want in this restricting parking area. Um, so it is a very flexible way of consumption. A 
golf course. Um, in mega cities, it is usually um, as an addition to public transport. And um, there are even schemes that connect car sharing and future mobility with other forms of transport. So, for instance, we can see increasingly parking spaces um, at airports where people are actually traveling by plane, but then use a car sharing car to bridge this um, distance from their airport to their homes. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Is this right now, is, I could see it being mostly urban areas. Mm-hmm. There would be some problems if you're in a very rural area, if you had to car share to travel 100 miles or something. Yes. Um, So, of course, this free-floating system is always restricted to an area within a city center. Um, However, our research has shown that in rural areas, um, people actually really love carpooling or ride-sharing, and this is a great alternative for um, additions to car ownership and that also promote this um, sustainable transportation solutions and, of course, helps to reduce greenhouse gas emissions um, just by reducing the number of cars that are on the street. Mm. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to hear more about uh, Ed Stafford and his family's experience with their Tesla, hear more about car sharing. (laughs) We'll talk about all uh, four of these, uh, this acronym, ACES, which Ed Stafford says is the future of of automobiles. Automated, connected, electric, and shared. So Ed Stafford, before we go to break, is that, I guess that's a prediction We'll, we'll all be there, or most of us will be there? I, I think this is what analysts are saying is what sustainable transportation uh, needs to incorporate. We need to have it electric because uh, electricity is increasingly becoming cleaner. It'll be shared because not everybody will want to own a car, but they'll still need access to it. Uh, connected, so that way they, the cars talk to each other to avoid traffic jams for safety. And, of, uh, of course, uh, automated, that we may have robots driving our cars. Yeah. Uh, again, before we go to break, let me talk a little bit about the automated portion of it. Um, some of the early ads, I think, for Tesla on the automated portion had people napping on their way to work. And uh, uh, You know, technically you're not supposed to do that. Uh, okay. So when, when we actually did go in the automated uh, version of our test drive, the, uh, the salesperson actually sat in the driver's seat and she put her hands down on her lap. Uh, as she drove, but technically you want to be able to grab the wheel uh, because the car is not, um, you know, it's it's not perfect. And so you need to be uh, thinking about your car as it's moving. It's kind of like autopilot, perhaps, of a jet plane. You still need to have pilots there ready to take control if the plane uh, does not do what it needs to do. Uh, so sleeping and napping, that would be dangerous. So the, so the airplane, maybe that's a, a good analogy. <laughs> yes, yes, I think so. And I yeah. think that that really is what automated means, is that the car is driving itself, but you need to be cognizant and aware and monitoring the car at all times. Yeah. I should correct, possibly correct. I'm not sure that the Tesla ads had people sleeping. Well, but but maybe that was my but, extension, oh, my imagination. I'm not. I, sure. I think it's just it's you know things that you read about how people say that you know they can literally just relax while the car is driving. And here's the thing: there are all these sensors and cameras on the car, and as you're driving, say through rain or snow, if those sensors get covered by snow, that can uh, not allow the car to be automated. So, so there are limits to when the car can be fully automated, and if, if mud does get splattered on a sensor, uh, that could create some challenges. Yeah. 
uh, I want to go back to your experience, because I haven't had this experience, oh, right? A lot no. of our, so you and your family in the car, it's yeah. a high rate of speed. It yes. is automated. And it is automated. So it, it was it was interesting. It was exciting. It was not something I wanted to uh, have on a regular basis. So we did not put the automated into the Tesla. That was an extra upcharge. It was several thousand dollars. I can't think exactly what the exact price was. Uh, but for me, I was more interested that I have a solar panel at my home that I could charge my car with the solar panel. And yeah. so for me, it was more... Uh, if electric is the future, I wanted to be able to experience it firsthand and be able to write about it and talk about it. And that was probably my main motivation. The kids just thought it was cool. But, yeah. you know, for me, it's not the coolness. It was like, this is the family car. I'm I'm driving kids around. I'm driving their friends, all their gear. Um, can we take this on long trips to California? What are the implications of having an electric vehicle? And that's essentially what we've been doing for the past year. Right. It it has it needs to start any new technology starts with cool doesn't it though and then well, we'll yes we'll, we'll talk yeah. about that following yes, the break absolutely uh, that's what you study I think both of you that study uh, this in in some depth uh, we'll talk about that and so you're at Stafford trying to bridge that uh, chasm as you're as you're talking about uh, the article is coming out in the uh, June edition um, of uh, sustainability uh, the Journal of Record. The title is Bridging the Chasm, an Early Adopter's Perspectives on How Electric Vehicles Can Go Mainstream. Ed Stafford and his family bought a Tesla. We're talking about that. We're also talking with Antje Grell, who is a doctoral researcher at Leeds University Business School in England, currently visiting scholar at the Huntsman School of Business at Utah State University. And her uh, area of interest includes uh, car sharing. We're talking about that uh, with her as well. We'd love to hear from you. I want to know about your uh, perhaps experiences with early adoption. How's your Prius going? And uh, would you consider making the jump, as Ed's family did, from the Prius to the Tesla? Uh, what other things are you doing in the field of sustainability that kind of are, are bridging that uh, chasm as well? Uh, the number here is 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or you can reach us by email to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. I'm looking for, uh, you know, um, Positive and negative stories, uh, um, stuff that worked and maybe stuff that didn't, like Ed's uh, solar Christmas lights. Uh, it's, it's all a journey, isn't it? So 800-826-1495 or upraxis at gmail.com. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members, and support for science reporting on Utah Public Radio comes from the Utah State University Ecology Center, providing training opportunities for today's science communicators one story at a time. And Utah Humanities, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement. Online at utahhumanities.org. There is no issue more divisive in America today than immigration policy. The federal government has formally begun moving to get tougher on illegal immigration. I just signed two executive orders. President Trump talking tough on immigration. That will save thousands of lives, millions of jobs. And folks just don't want to come to this country any longer. Ask 21 people what they think. You're going to get 21 different answers. The Department of Homeland Security. As Utah Public Radio begins research for a new original series, we want your knowledge and opinion. Opinions. What do you think about immigration in the U.S.? Do you want to see changes in the refugee process? Have immigrants had a particular impact in your life? We want to know what you think about these important issues. At upr.org, let your voice be heard. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, we're talking about the future, potential future of your automobile. 
and the acronym is ACES. Uh, experts say that uh, it's very likely that in the future, all of us or most of us will uh, be involved with our cars with, uh, they'll be automated, connected, electric, and shared. And uh, so on the electric side of that, uh, Ed Stafford, marketing professor at Utah State University, uh, convinced his family to, uh, to buy a Tesla uh, to upgrade from the Prius. And uh, he uh, talks about his experience uh, in the upcoming uh, June issue of Sustainability, the Journal of Record. The article is called Bridging the Chasm, an early adopter's perspectives on how electric vehicles can go mainstream. We're also talking with Antje Graul, who's a doctoral researcher at Leeds University Business School in England, currently a visiting scholar at the Huntsman School of Business at Utah State University. And uh, part of her professional interest is, is sustainable transportation, future of sustainable transportation, specifically car sharing. So we're talking about uh, that on the program uh, today. That's a part of what experts say we're all going to be involved in. Automated, connected, electric, and, uh, and shared. Uh, so at Stafford... Um, the Tesla's coming out with a, a new model. They're, they're going to now, they've been targeting high-end, and now they're going to target the, the mainstream consumer. Uh, not out yet, so you and your family had to buy one of those high-end. Uh, yes, and so that was uh, that was one of the struggles we had in terms of deciding did we want to spend that extra money to get, um, to get the Tesla Model S. We bought the biggest battery that we could, which uh, at that time was about a 300-mile range. So under a full charge, we can pretty much go about 250 to 300 miles on one charge. And so that clearly was necessary for the long-distance travel that we do. Uh, Tesla is actually coming out with a $35,000 electric vehicle this July that can go 215 miles on a single charge. And it will be priced comparable to a Prius. Uh, Chevrolet has already launched the Bolt, which gets 238 miles on a single charge, and that is priced between $35,000 and $40,000. So what uh, many car enthusiasts uh, or or electric vehicle enthusiasts are saying is that we now have these mid-priced cars that are comparable to the price of, you know, everyday hybrid cars that we have on the roads. Um, now this could be the tipping point to try to bring people in onto electric vehicles. Our experience, however, suggests that there are other barriers that are facing um, uh, EV adoption. And so those things need to be fixed. And so the purpose of my article was, one, to give people some insight. What does it take to adopt an electric vehicle? Insurance, thinking about uh, charging, uh, you know, retrofitting your home so that you can charge your car, those types of issues. But more importantly, also, what is it going to take for the car makers to get electric vehicles on the road? If, we're, if we are serious about a more sustainable form of, of uh, transportation for our country and for the world, going electric is a critical component, um, but there are still some issues in how we can do that. And so what do the car companies need to do to make that happen? And so I have a list of things that I have identified that are necessary for that based on consumer adoption theory. Let's talk about that. First of all, um, did you consider the other? Did you consider the Chevy or the? Or I, I did n- not. Nissan and the, has electric vehicles. Yes, and the, and the problem is, is that because their uh, their range was only about a hundred miles, um, this uh, was a potential challenge uh, in terms of adopting that. We live in a, a more rural area here in uh, Cache Valley. Uh, we have found only five charging stations in downtown Logan. 
Uh, two of them are at hotels or motels. One is at a car dealership, and then two are actually on the street, uh, kind of in the uh, near the Tabernacle, near uh, Cafe Ibis. Um, and so what happens is, is that if you have an electric vehicle, there are not a lot of places to charge your car outside of your home. Uh, we did find uh, two Tesla chargers at Maloof, which is a, uh, they built a new facility um, out on the outskirts of town. Uh, but then again, that's kind of out of the way for us. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a level two charging, which means that it'll charge about 25 miles per hour. So when I am uh, doing errands in Logan, I will uh, plug the car in and I'll literally walk to do all my errands. I'll either have coffee, uh, you know, at Einstein or Cafe Ibis. I'll do my banking. Uh, I'll eat at uh, uh, Lenone there all in downtown. And I'll do that so that way I can uh, uh, basically allow the car to sit there to charge when I do need to have it charged. Uh, and so I do get a lot of walking in uh, as an electric car owner simply because there's an incentive for me to keep the car there, to have it charging while I can run all my errands, whereas before I would literally drive to each place, uh, even if I were in the downtown area. So I think from that perspective, it's maybe better for my health. Uh, but, uh, but that's something to think about, that if you're going to charge the car, you have to kind of think ahead, how can I get all my errands done so that way I can have a, a one-hour or two-hour uh, charge and, and that's something to think about uh, as, a, as a, an electric car owner. Tesla does give you free access to its superchargers, and that's a level three. So it's very, very fast charging. You can get about 170 miles charged within about 30 minutes. Um, we go to one in Salt Lake quite frequently. The challenge with the one in Salt Lake is that it's not near shopping or restaurants or anything. They've got a little uh, sitting area with a television, coffee, water, some snacks. And uh, our experiences, when we go to Salt Lake, I will stop off at uh, the charging station at uh, Tesla, charge the car for 30, 45 minutes, and uh, my wife and I will either watch TV or I'll bring my Wall Street Journal. And so it's, I think, ahead as to what I'm going to do to recharge the car before I come back to Logan. Mm. But I expect that what you want is probably what everyone wants, is that your car be like your phone. Yes. Right? You, you want to plug it in at your house overnight. Yes. Okay. And so this is probably one of the best features about uh, um, having an electric vehicle is the convenience of being able to charge overnight. And so I do do that. The barrier that I see there, however, was is that it was quite costly to put uh, the appropriate electrical outlet and charging system into your home. And I personally see that as probably being the biggest barrier to electric vehicle adoption. Um, it cost us about $825 to retrofit our home to have that. I've heard some people have spent thousands of dollars to put charging equipment into their homes. And so this, uh, they call it the Tesla tax, and that is that you don't really know what the cost will be until you start getting estimates. If you live in an older home that may not have uh, the 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 modern electrical uh, connections that you need for uh, a, uh, an electric vehicle, it could cost you significantly more. Mm. If you live in an apartment where the landlords may not want to put charging stations in the, uh, you know, the carports, that could also be a significant barrier for you to adopt uh, an electric vehicle. I'll turn to, uh, back to Antigua. I'll uh, talk about uh, car sharing and specifically get into talking about how people adopt new uh, technology, adopt new, uh, I guess, ways of transportation in this mm -hmm. case. 
So uh, car sharing, d- d- what will it take for more and more people to, to adopt this? Is, it, is mm-hmm. it car manufacturers, companies tapping into the culture that's already there, I guess, among millennials and, and, and other uh, young people? Yes. Is, mm-hmm. is it people changing their culture? What, what does it take? Mm-hmm. So, of course, we have two sides. So we have the consumer side and we have the companies that need to provide all the infrastructure. So um, maybe I could start from the consumer side. Um, we have seen that consumers um, in the beginning, they mainly joined car sharing for sustainable consumption reasons. So they wanted to be more sustainable, more environmentally friendly. Whereas now we can actually see that in Europe, there becomes a shift towards making car sharing mainstream, especially in mega cities. Um, and basically what most of the consumers say is a lot of them actually almost 50% of them sign for uh, sign up for a car sharing scheme because they're interested in trying it out and of course we could see that in the beginning those people were um maybe it's 70% male in most of the car sharing providers um, because potentially males, they were more eager to try out this new technology and to try out um, driving a new car, which isn't their own. Um, however, now we can see it becomes more and more mainstream. And what we actually find is um, that consumers um, in mega cities um, they are in, on average maybe between 20 and 40 years old. And of course, there's the growing user segment where um, we have students and young professionals. And usually they have a very high usage of media and their apps. And um, I think, um, especially in mega cities, one of the main challenges actually um, is part of the provider of the car sharing scheme. Um, basically, it comes to parking space agreements. Um, it is very crucial that the areas where we want to operate in are covered because um, for example it happened to my friend um, he was living in Berlin and he chose car sharing um, to go to a meeting so he basically found this car sharing car which was just parked in front of his apartment and he could drive the car to his meeting which was a bit outside town however within the restricted area so he could just drop the car um, after his meeting however he found himself in the situation there then that the next a car that was available was parked fairly far away. Um, So, of course, this was very inconvenient for him. So here, um, I think it is one of the main challenges that really... um, the operative business management can solve these logistics and can actually make car sharing and the infrastructure that is needed for car sharing available throughout the city center. Um, Of course, there were other um, challenges from the provider perspective um, when it comes to insurance um, because this novel mode of consumption um, hasn't been seen before. So there was literally no insurance company that would want to cover those kind of drives. So there has been a lot of negotiation between providers and insurance companies in order to um, basically develop this new way of insurance for consumers and to make them feel safe. Hmm. Where does uh, Uber and Lyft, companies like that, fit in? Mm-hmm. It seems like that's sort of part way to, yes. to car sharing. Of course. Yeah, so um, for Uber and Lyft, the difference would be that, of course, people don't drive themselves. Um, so we have a driver that is driving the car and that is basically offering you a lift. So Uber claims there are... Um, very comparable with taxi services, however, more flexible, more personalized, and of course, cheaper. Um, so, of course, this is also um, underneath the umbrella scheme of share, of the sharing economy, of collaborative consumption. And um, this is especially interesting when it comes to mega 
cities um, because people love the new um, features that Uber, for example, has in place. Because Uber allows you not only to book a ride on a flexible base um, to beat prices of traditional taxi drivers, um, but also to carpool with other people. So the technology is very fascinating because I could say I'm at Utah State University and I want to go to another place. And then the app allows me to opt for pooling. So basically, if there might be another person at the same time that would like to go to the same direction or has basically um, a destination that is on the way, then the app allows us to pool together and to share the cost of this ride. Um, so this is very fascinating. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How does this fit into the sharing economy? There, there. This is one example of... Mm -hmm of how sharing fits in. What Are there other examples? Yes. Um, yeah, so in general, I would say the sharing economy is a concept that emerged over the last decade or so. And of course, it has been fueled by mobile technology, by the development of mega cities. Um, actually, um, I think for in terms of urbanization, 70% of our population um, will live in cities by 2050. This is what experts um, forecast. And so the sharing economy allows you to use an object instead of buying and possessing it. And this does, of course, account for cars, but also for household appliances. It accounts for um, for tools like a drilling machine, or it also accounts for accommodation. We all probably know Airbnb, which is one of the major examples where um, actually consumers share their private accommodation with each other instead of opting for a hotel. Mm -hmm. And um, this is a very interesting development of, of course, car sharing and especially Uber um, are major examples of this new development. Yeah. We turn back to Ed Stafford. Um, by the way, we're talking with Ed Stafford, professor of marketing at uh, USU, and Anche Growl, who is a doctoral researcher at Leeds University Business School in England, currently a visiting scholar at, uh, the, at USU. Uh, so at Stafford, as I'm thinking about a lot of these things, I, as a middle-aged person, I've heard of a lot of these things. I haven't really considered doing, you know, I don't want to do an Airbnb. I don't want to I'm really nervous about doing Uber, you know. Mm -hmm. I I kind of would like to get in a Tesla and go 200 miles an hour automated, but it <laughs> terrifies me, you know. <laughs> um, so I'm not the classic early adopter, right? No, and, and, and neither am I in terms of wanting to go fast. So what, what I think is very interesting is this notion of diffusion of innovation. You're absolutely right that what you need to do is when you have a new innovation, you need to figure out who those very first adopters are, who are those what we call the innovators, the people who are going to be the very first to uh, adopt this technology. And it was interesting, what Tesla did was they came out with this car in 2008 called the Roadster. And it was modeled after Lotus, which is a car company uh, that actually was an early investor into Tesla. And the whole purpose of that electric vehicle was to make it a two-seater sports car that would appeal to racer enthusiasts. So that way, that Tesla could kind of change people's perception that an electric vehicle is more than just a golf cart. And so when they developed this technology, they purposely went after race car enthusiasts. George Clooney was actually, I think, the fifth adopter. He, he adopted the, the fifth Roadster when it came out. It had problems, and he would get frustrated, and he'd actually very publicly talk about his, um, you know, his uh, Tesla that would break down on the side of the road uh, because uh, it had some technical challenges that needed to be worked through. And that is actually a characteristic of an innovator. They're very willing to, you know, for the sheer adventure of it and the potential risk, they're, they're risk takers. 
uh, and they're more likely to, um, you know, want to experience a brand new technology. Now, the Model S that we purchased has now many of those uh, issues have been ironed out. We've not had any problems with our Model S, and it, uh, Consumer Reports very often notes that it's a very reliable car, gives it very high ratings, and so we're, we're pleased with overall how the car has performed. Um, but again, that car was designed for the early adopters. So early adopters, they tend to be uh, people that will embrace change and embrace new innovations that fit their values. So I, I work in sustainability, I work in clean technology, worked in wind and solar and all these areas. So for me, it fit what I believe in and what I want to understand. And so uh, that is really kind of the next step. How do you design a product to appeal to those early adopters? And then now this Model 3 and Chevrolet's Bolt, those are designed for those what we call the early majority. So these are the more mainstream consumers. Uh, they're priced so that they're competitive with gas-powered and they're competitive with hybrid cars. And so the next step is, is that you're shifting your marketing and shifting the product to appeal to this next generation of buyers. So we're, we're seeing that it started out with the Roadster. We now have the Model S and the Model X for Tesla. And now the next generation of buyers will be for the Model 3. Now, does it need to follow that? Does the research show that, that I guess that's the most successful you go for the cool? Because uh, uh, I think uh, Nissan took another path. They, they went directly yes. to the, the middle class with yes. their Leaf. So, so one of the challenges with the Leaf and uh, with the BMW i3 and some of the other cars that um, th one of the issues that they attempted to do was to target kind of middle class consumers. I had written an article back in 2012 and had gotten some flack uh, from people in Detroit and, and some people in the car industry when um, I pointed out that you know electric vehicles are not cars that you go after kind of your middle class market. And yet these cars were targeted for those individuals. Uh, back in 2012, the car was struggling to kind of get out the door. There was not high demand. Even today, we don't have big demand for many of these electric vehicles. Part of it is because oil prices are so low. Uh, and so uh, people don't really see the need to have to switch. But I honestly believe that if you you know, design a radical new innovation such as an electric vehicle and then you target soccer moms or middle class people, nothing against them, but it's just those people are not your typical innovators. And so Tesla got it right when they said, hey, we're going to make this fancy, sexy sports car and we're going to go after race car enthusiasts and celebrities. They're going to be our innovators that made sense because what happened was is that those people adopted the product and in turn that helped facilitate the next step for the early adopters like myself. And the early adopters are very important in diffusion theory because they are the ones who are the evangelists. In other words, your neighbor, my neighbors see me in my Tesla. They see what's going on with my Tesla. And if they see that I'm having a, a positive experience with it, then they're more likely to want to adopt. Uh, when I put my solar panels up, Shortly after that, I had some neighbors in the neighborhood also put up solar panels. So there's this uh, effect where if you're an early adopter of a technology and people see that it works, they're going to feel more comfortable about adopting that technology. Hmm. Let's take another break. And when we come back, I want to – I'll start with uh, Anja Growl uh, and we'll also talk to Ed Stafford about barriers. But also, where are the limits? And I'm curious, for, for example, uh, I'll, I'll ask you this question following the break – um, are there limits, do you think, to the sharing economy? Because it seems like it's creeping into most areas of our lives. Mm -hmm. um, creeping maybe is a 
a, a loaded word. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> in, in maybe indicates a bias. Let's let's uh, uh, you know, whatever the whatever the uh, synonym might be, because I don't mean to to express a bias there. But to, we'll explore that and uh, and barriers and and we'll ask the the key question of Ed uh, Stafford. Um, can the the Tesla can the electric vehicle go mainstream? That's the big question that Teslas uh, and uh, Chevy and others are uh, are gambling on. More following the break. Welcome to Science by the Slice. When we think of bees, images of a busy hive inhabited by an imposing queen bee and her specialized minions come to mind. But not all bees live in cooperative harmony, says USU biologist Karen Kapheim. Some are long rangers. Kapheim and her colleagues from around the world study genetic changes associated with bee evolution. A key feature of increased sociality, they say, is a species' increased capacity to regulate genes in individuals. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. Details at usu.edu science. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we are talking about uh, the future of our automobiles. Also talking about the sharing economy, and we're going to explore the limits of the sharing economy, and uh, we'll ask Ed Stafford as well, uh, are electric vehicles going to be adopted uh, widely? Uh, he's, uh, he and his family have had a Tesla for a while as, as your family car, right? So Absolutely. Uh, so you're an early adopter. Um, and we're uh, talking about this uh, with Ed Stafford, who is a marketing professor at USU, and Antje Grau, who is a doctoral researcher at Leeds University Business School in England and currently a visiting scholar at uh, USU. And Ed Stafford's article, uh, Bridging the Chasm and Early Adopters' Perspectives on How Electric Vehicles Can Go Mainstream, uh, will appear in the June issue of Sustainability, the Journal of, uh, of Record. Let me turn first to Antje Grau. Um, I'm interested in the limits do you think there are limits to the sharing economy? We've got, uh, we're sharing cars, we're sharing uh, living spaces. Uh, mm-hmm. I, yes. I guess anything we do can be shared in it terms is, of the sharing economy? Yeah, it is very interesting. Um, usually limits have been um, assumed to be the areas, so basically coming from urban areas to rural areas. Um, however, we can actually see a very nice development where we think this is not exactly the case. So, for example, here um, in Utah, we have a car sharing scheme just for the university, and it's actually run by um, Enterprise, and um, we have memberships where we can enroll um, and then pay between 5 to $7 just per hour rental fee. And we have seen um, a very great adaption to this program. So when it was running, um, the cars that were that have been out there um, have actually been used for about 100 hours a month. And these numbers actually show us that there is a potential. And of course, especially when it comes to car sharing, we have um, research that forecasts um, 26 million users of car sharing services worldwide um, by 2020. And um, of course, um, it is um, 
the sharing economy in general is a multi-billion dollar business. It is growing and it has a global revenue. Um, one of the major challenges I would see um, personally um, is the challenge of trust. Um, because in the sharing economy, even though it is a market-mediated transaction and even though there is a monetary fee involved, um, it is in most cases an interaction between two individuals. Um, and of course, um, we can say that trust is the new currency of the sharing economy. We need to try to rely on each other, to trust each other, and there could potentially be boundaries um, to this. However, we have rating um, systems in place which allow us to draw conclusions to who is hosting us on Airbnb, who is providing us their car, and what kind of rankings they have. Um, but that might be one of the major challenges for the future. And of course, um, it is disrupting um, traditional econ economies, traditional businesses. and. Um, um, consumers as well as businesses need to find new solutions of how they can actually adapt to this change in consumption. Of course, the, the other part of trust as well, safety. So mm -hmm. I guess that, that would have to be solved as well and, mm -hmm. and thought yes. through. Yes, of course. Um, so usually um, the advantage of using a market-mediated scheme or a market-mediated platform is that these market mediators, they have safety um, safety insurances in place. So they cover insurances, they're covering damages, and they usually have numbers which you can call if you have a problem. So it actually allows um, consumers to be a little bit more entrepreneurial when it comes to renting out their car or renting out their space over Airbnb because, of course, this platform now um, takes a lot of the risk on um, which consumers don't need to worry about because um, these platforms assure that, for instance, the person that is sharing their car has been checked up before in terms of their driving records and so on. Um, so these market mediating platforms are crucial. Hmm. At Stafford, you've had uh, your family's had the Tesla for a while. You've been thinking about this, uh, that this bridging the chasm. You're talking about the chasm between the early adopter and mainstream. So... Uh, let me just ask you the question right out. Is is is, is it going to go mainstream? Is it going to be able think, to go mainstream? I, I think so. In fact, uh, I was just reading uh, that even some of the oil companies are seeing that the future by 2030, per potentially a third of our cars may be electric. Uh, I would hope that would even be more than that. Um, but here are some of the things that I see that are probably the biggest uh, issues right now, and that is the time that it takes to recharge uh, your car. So for even with a 300 mile battery pack that we have in our Tesla, for every about three hours of kind of long distance driving, you can expect about a one hour recharge of your car. Now, Tesla has charging stations all over the country. So you're um, pretty much assured that uh, you, know, you can check on your navigation system in the car where the next Tesla charging station is. When we travel, uh, we like to look to see what amenities may be near the charging station. Uh, you may be stuck with a, you know, a fast food restaurant that you don't necessarily like, uh, so, you know, when, when you go to a particular charging station, or you can walk to find a better restaurant from there. So, you know, that's kind of a, a, a uh, an issue that you have to think ahead. If you're going to charge and you're in Winnemucca, Utah, or if you're, you know, in some place that you're not normally at, uh, what are the amenities nearby? Is there a better restaurant nearby? What what can you do? And so that is, I think, a um, something that an innovator and an early adopter would take on, but I don't think mainstream drivers are going to be willing to put up with. So we need to get the charging to be more pervasive, particularly for non-Tesla uh, car owners or uh, electric car owners, but also the speed 
of the charging needs to be about the same as pumping gasoline. And I think that in itself will really be uh, the linchpin to make electric vehicles mainstream. If we can get the charging to be as fast as pumping gas, that I think will really be uh, where it takes off. And um, Elon Musk uh, of Tesla has said that they are working this year to make charging go faster. He has not said it will be identical to pumping gas, but it's getting faster and faster. And I think that will be um, clearly, that will be the potential tipping point that I see. Hmm. just have about a minute left. A final question that cars, at least in America, have been associated with romance. Right with with it's the romance of the open road, yes. especially in the rural areas, yes. uh, the west where we are. Yes, is that going to have any place in the electric future? Oh, I, I think so. Tesla has uh, charging stations at our national parks. Um, I, I mean, it's it's amazing how Tesla. One of the reasons why Tesla costs so much is that you're not just paying for a sleek car, but you're also paying for access and the development of their infrastructure to charge. And so that is what they're giving you is basically a complete integrated system of electric charging, long range batteries and kind of a no compromise performance in their cars. And so this kind of three key components of what you're purchasing with the Tesla allows you to have that that open road uh, access. Other cars that get only 100 miles to a charge, that's where the restrictions are. And so I think the Bolt and the Model 3 being mid-priced cars, that definitely is important. But the next step is to get the charging to be faster. Hmm. We will leave it there. We've been uh, talking about uh, the future of the automobile and uh, the future. So many experts say it will be automated, connected, electric, and shared. We've been talking about various aspects of that with Ed Stafford, who is Professor of Marketing at USU, and Anja Growl, who is Doctoral Researcher at Leeds University Business School in England, currently Visiting Scholar at USU. Thanks to you both for coming in. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Canadian musician Leslie Feist, or Feist, will be here. She's releasing Pleasure, her first album in six years. Some are saying her best record yet. She'll talk about how she hopes it'll motivate fans to look at the world with brighter eyes. That's coming up on Q from PRI, Public Radio International. Join us this afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. of Humanities and Social Sciences. Heard on KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard online at upr.org.